Uh, we're continuing our series through the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn there, 2 Samuel 17. And after today, we're actually going to be taking a little bit of a break. So we have our retreat next week. After that, um, one of our elders in training, Greg, who is up here, he's going to be preaching from 2 Corinthians. Uh, so that'll be a little departure from 2 Samuel. And then we're going to jump into our Advent series after, uh, well, I guess, in December when Christmas is coming up. So we'll finish up 2 Samuel next year, if you can believe it. Um, so today is kind of a cliffhanger. We're not even going to finish the story of Absalom and kind of what's going on with him. So you'll have to come back next year to find out what happens. 2 Samuel 17. And as we've been doing, I'm going to read it as we go along. Okay, so let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this time that we could be in your word. God, we know that your word is living, it's active, that it could transform us, that it has the ability to give us faith, to save us. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So God, I pray that you would use this time in all of us. God, whether we need to be encouraged or convicted or both, whether we've been going to church our entire lives or whether this is our first time, God, I pray that you would use your word, which is powerful. And God, I pray that this time would not be about my words or what I'm saying. I pray that it would be about your word, the scripture. And I pray, God, that this time ultimately will just be all about you. So we look to you. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. When Vivek Ranadive, you might recognize that name. Hopefully I said it right. When he uh, was a little bit younger, this brilliant businessman, you might know him, he's almost a billionaire, he's very rich, he decided to coach his daughter's basketball team. This was, again, a few years back. And when he looked at his team's, uh, I guess when he looked at the roster's construction, he realized that he would have to do something different. Because there are only two girls on the team who had played basketball before, and the rest of the girls, including his daughter, had literally never played. They were shorter less experienced, less athletic than all the other teams in their league. And so being a smart guy, being an entrepreneur, and a guy who had arrived in America at 17 with only $50 in his pocket and turned it into hundreds of millions, he decided to apply and leverage his resourcefulness and genius to basketball. His team, vastly outmatched by the competition, would play the game differently. They would full-court press. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. They had no idea what it was either. They knew nothing about basketball. But what he saw, what Randadive saw, was that most teams wouldn't play defense the entire length of the court. Okay, what they would do is they would run back to their basket and wait for the other team to bring the ball up at their pace and run the set plays that they had practiced. They would kind of let them get comfortable. But Ranadive thought, what a waste of opportunity. Let's not let them breathe easy. Let's put pressure on them the entire length of the court. What if we do something they have never seen before? What if we do something they haven't practiced for? And it worked. You might know this story, but this upstart team with a bunch of girls who had never played basketball before won and one and one some more, flustering and destroying teams that were taller and bigger and faster and more experienced. They were a team of Davids who somehow were wiping the floor with all these Goliaths week after week, and they actually rode the success all the way to the national championship. Now, I use that analogy purposefully, David and Goliath, not just because we've been talking about David in the books of Samuel, but also because I read about Ranadive's daughter's team, this story, in an article by Malcolm Gladwell called How David Beats Goliath. And the point he makes is that the conventional wisdom just doesn't hold up. He says that oftentimes we use the term David and Goliath to talk about an underdog who has no shot of winning. But he says underdogs actually win a lot statistically. I mean, even David himself, he defeated Goliath. And they win the game, they win the battles the same way the girls win. They play to their strengths, they use their wits, they win by turning their disadvantages into advantages. The point of the article was it's simple strategy. But let me ask you a question, though. I know it's been a while since we were in 1 Samuel, but let me ask you a question. 
you think that this is how David beat Goliath? Was it simple strategy, turning disadvantages into advantages? David versus Goliath is by far the most famous story about David in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, period. So you probably know how it goes. A young shepherd boy, he faces up against a Goliath, a giant, a Philistine warrior from his youth who everyone is scared of with nothing but a slingshot and five smooth stones, and he wipes the floor with them. Now, is Gladwell correct? Was it just simple strategy? Was David just faster? Did he utilize his speed advantage? Was Goliath trained in sword combat just so unprepared for this unconventional warfare of this moving target and this slingshot? He just didn't know how to fight against someone who would throw a stone in his face. Is that the lesson? That David used his supposed weaknesses and turned them into strengths? Is the lesson you got to think harder? Is the lesson that underdogs just have hidden advantages that they need to discover in order to win the battle? And you say, Jesse, what are we even talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. When we face problems in life, where do you turn? I want you to think about that for a second. When you face a problem in life, where do you actually go when you know that the odds are stacked against you? What I'm asking is, where is your confidence in the moments where you don't know what to do. And think personally, okay? Don't just think theoretically about a battlefield or a basketball court, unless that is your problem. Think about, you know, when you're having an issue with a person in your life that you just can't escape from easily. A family member, maybe someone at work, maybe even your spouse. How do you approach it? Or what happens when you have a problem with your boss at work and you can't find another job or you have a complication with your health or there's something that has to do with your kids that's just nagging at you? This is real life stuff. We all face these kinds of things. So what do we do? I mean, do we throw the kitchen sink at it? Do we try to find our hidden advantage? We research, ask for expert advice, try every available treatment, go into hyperproductive solvent mode. Or maybe we just feel like I don't have it in me, so we try to get away, try to run away, move to a different city, start over. Or you do, do you just freeze? Are you the kind of person who gets overwhelmed with anxiety and it just paralyzes you? Whichever is your natural response, here's where we're going today. Here's the real question. However you face the problems in your life, and you're going to face problems, where for you does God fit in? How does God fit into that? Does God even make a difference? Or, as Gladwell tries to argue about David and Goliath, it's really a matter of just simple thinking. See, we've come to the most stressful chapter in Second Samuel. At least it's the most stressful chapter for the people living in it. Remember, these are real people who live real lives. It's not just a story. And right here, we see that David is a man on the run for his life, literally. His own son, Absalom, has turned against him, and Absalom has turned the nation against its rightful king. This is the worst thing that has happened in David's life thus far. And see, when David had stepped up to Goliath all those years ago, remember, there wasn't even a hint of fear in his voice. He was so confident that God would help him win. But now his problems are deeper and less simple David shed zero tears facing Goliath, but he can't stop weeping now. And if he thought that the reason David beat Goliath back then was because of the surprise of his speed or his strategy, if you think it was something that was in David, well then, where is our hope now? I mean, we'll be sweating bullets here because here it doesn't seem like David's going to be able to get out of it based on his speed. He's an old man now. Based on his smarts, Absalom has outwitted him at every turn. Realistically speaking, he is so vulnerable. But it's here that we're able to see something that we desperately need to know for our own lives. Whatever kind of problem you're facing. It's here we're reminded of the true lesson. In case you forgot or in case someone led you astray, the true lesson of David and Goliath. In a battle that David's slingshot cannot hope to solve. At the end of the day, it's not about strategy or resourcefulness or turning your disadvantages into advantages. At the end of the day, it's not in your hands. It's not about you at all. Can I get an amen for that? 
And this is actually good news. Let's get into it. Three points from our text. First, the council. We'll look at the first part. We're calling it the council, which is about the better plan, the truly better plan. Look at verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, verse 3, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. Now we're kind of hitting the ground running. Who is Ahithophel? Ahithophel was formerly David's greatest advisor a man renowned for his wisdom, but he switched sides. He's part of the insurrection. Now, this new regime is holding court for the first time, and Ahithophel is advising Absalom as he once advised his father. And his counsel is brutally simple. First, last chapter, he said, sleep with your father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Kind of crazy advice. But the point was, show the nation you're serious. You're done with your father His kingdom is over. You're a different kind of king. And Absalom followed his counsel in the sight of all Israel. He slept with his father's concubines on the rooftop of the palace. And now here, in continuation of that, Ahithophel says, let me, okay, let me handpick 12,000 warriors. And I will personally end this tonight. It's cold. right, this is his king that he used to serve. He said, I will end this tonight. Now, I don't want to belabor the point. But what he says in these three verses is very, very smart. Okay, first of all, he says, let's get 12,000 men. It's not just about the numbers, okay, the sheer size of the numbers. It's the symbolism. That's 1,000 uh, 1, people from every tribe of Israel. Now, this is kind of a uh, tense situation. You don't know who's on whose side. If Ahithophel gets 1,000 from each tribe and he shows up to fight David, what does it present? It, prevents, uh, it presents a unified front. David's supporters are going to think the entire nation has turned to Absalom, that this is one nation, one army. And then he says, he will go. Ahithophel says, he will go. He knows that for all of Absalom's gifts, he never fought in a war. He killed a guy, but that was at a dinner table. He's not been on the battlefield. So this way, he can keep the prince out of danger. And then, maybe most importantly, Ahithophel says that he'll go tonight when David is weary, when he's on the run, he's discouraged. He says, I won't let David rest or regroup or gather support, and I'll kill David only. We won't drag this out. It won't become a a civil war. I'll kill David, and I'll unite the country, and everything will be good. We'll be at peace. See, Ahithophel is thinking ahead. He's thinking of what would actually work, how Absalom can be king for real. And verse 4, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And though they don't know this, we do, because we just read chapter 16, David is on the ropes. David is vulnerable. A lot of people who don't like David are coming out of the woodwork. Ahithophel's plan, if he did it, would almost certainly work. But even though Absalom loves the plan, he wants a second opinion. Look at verse 5. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So who is Hushai? Hushai is David's friend who is here undercover to hopefully somehow thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. Because everyone knows that Ahithophel guiding Absalom will be disaster for David. He's going to give him the best advice. Absalom is going to take over. He's going to do all the right things. So David sends Hushai to hopefully somehow throw a wrench in the plans. The problem is Ahithophel just offered a great idea without Hushai being there. Hushai wasn't even there to hear it, much less try to counter it. But then for some reason, look at verse 6. Absalom decides to gift Hushai an opportunity. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. So first of all, he tells him exactly what Ahithophel said. So he actually has a heads up. He's prepared. And then it would have been pretty difficult to come up with something from scratch. Okay, that would have been hard. It would have been hard for him to just start speaking against Ahithophel when everyone already thought Ahithophel's plan was good. But Absalom makes it easy for Hushai. He says, give us your critique. Is there anything wrong that you see? He opens up the door for sabotage. Verse 7, Hushai chooses his words carefully. 
He needs to protect his friend without giving away that he's trying to protect his friend. Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Now he subtly acknowledges what everyone knows is fact that usually 99% of the time Ahithophel's counsel is good. He just says, but this time it's a little off. And then listen to what he says in verse 8. I'll read all the way down to 13. Just listen to the whole thing. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. That's it. See, Hushai takes a different approach if you caught it. He knows that Ahithophel's plan is brutally effective. He knows, he's, he's guessing that if they follow that plan, David's going to lose. So what he does as David's friend, he tries to use his one shot to somehow get Absalom to do something else. So what he does is what professional poker players do. They don't play their hand, or so I've heard. I don't play poker. Okay, I'm a pastor. They don't play their hand. They play their opponents. They don't play their hand. They play their opponents. Hushai has an objectively worse hand. Okay? He's not as smart. He's not as respected. David is his friend. He's under more pressure. But instead of playing his worst hand, and losing, he plays Absalom. First, he plays to Absalom's vanity. He says, you know. He says, you know your father. Yeah, Ahithophel, he's smarter than us, but no one knows your father like you. You know he won't even be there. You appreciate, you understand how much of an expert at war he is. And then second, he plays to Absalom's strength, which is his popularity. He says, just understand the downside to Ahithophel's plan. If he goes, right, and there's kind of a slaughter or that he loses some people. People are going to think that Absalom's side is losing and they will flock to David's side. He makes Absalom think twice about all he stands to lose with the original plan. And then he proposes his own plan. He says, gather all Israel to you. Okay, he's playing to Absalom's ego. He knows Absalom is a proud man, a vain man. And he says, you should lead. Dan is the northernmost part of Israel. Okay, Beersheba is the southernmost part. You see this in the Bible a lot, just a heads up, where they'll say from Dan to Beersheba. He means the entire nation. Gather everyone. Lead them personally, and we'll wipe everyone on David's side out. They won't be able to run or hide. And did you notice? He uses this, like, flowery language. Okay, uh, Ahithophel did that a little bit. He said, like, I'll bring them back like a bride, and it's kind of flowery. It's, it's uh, very eloquent. Hushai does the same thing, but to the nth degree. He says, David is like a bear robbed of her cubs, or we'll gather all the people as the sand by the sea. We will light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. Basically, Hushai, he's just trying to make up for lack of substance with greater style. And this is how Absalom is. He's a man who has notably more style than substance. Even so, understand, as Hushai says this, as he's throwing his best effort out, as he uses all the powers of eloquence at his disposal, even though he's been gifted this opportunity, understand that Hushai even still has zero idea whether or not this is going to work. I mean, it could be taken totally the wrong way. Absalom might think he's disrespecting him, all playing up David's prowess as a warrior. He might think Hushai is trying to get him killed, telling him to go in person. There's a lot of risk. He says his peace, and he waits. And then verse 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then this is really the key 
For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, the objectively better counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You know, it's easy. It's easy to get caught up in analyzing the different plans, Hushai's versus Ahithophel's. What's better, playing the hand or playing the man? Style versus substance, trying to learn strategy from Scripture. But that's not the point of this text at all. We would be reading the result back into it, you know, trying to figure out why the counsel of, uh, of Hushai was taken. But that would be totally missing the mark because the reason is given for us. There's only one reason given for why Absalom prefers Hushai's less effective advice more dangerous advice over Ahithophel's. It says so right here in verse 14, because God had ordained it to be so. Because God wanted it to be that way. You know, when I was in seminary, there was a church planting class for people who wanted to plant a church. And I just saw my old preaching professor, Dr. Montoya, and I said, he taught that class. And I said, do you have any advice for me? Right? We planted this church a few years ago. And he said, well, did you take my class? And I said, no, I did not. He's like, why not? I was like, too late to change the past. Uh, but in that class, there was a specific church that they would always tell you to go visit. I also did not visit this church. Um, but anyway, that's kind of the point of what I'm saying here. The whole reason why they told us to go visit this church and talk to their pastors is because the church was doing really well. It was doing super well. It was vibrant. It was healthy. And people were growing in their faith, coming to faith, stuff like that. But, notably, but... They had no discernible strategy whatsoever. In fact, they did a lot of things that didn't make sense at all. For the longest time, they were meeting in this rented building, and they didn't put up a sign. And everyone was wondering, why don't you just have, like, a sign? Can't you just get a cardboard cutout and write the name of the church so that people who are looking for it can see it? And finally, they're like, oh, that would be a good idea. And I think, like, 10 years in, they put up a sign. But for 10 years, you couldn't even find this church, and yet God was bringing people to this church. And that's the point. That's what they wanted us to learn in this class. That at the end of the day, it's all the Lord. Look at this church. You can't point to any specific strategy. You can't point to any one thing they did. In fact, they did a lot of things that should have not worked. And yet, there was all this growth, all this fruit. It's all the Lord. And that's what they wanted us to learn in that class that I didn't take. Now, not that strategies are bad. Not that you shouldn't try Hushai tried his best to sway Absalom. He used everything that he had. But at the end of the day, we have to realize that God is the one who is control, who is in control, that God has a plan that supersedes all human strategy, and that the battle, as David said way back when, belongs to who? To the Lord. Now, okay, I don't want to make it sound like you can't trust me at all. The reason I didn't visit that church is because Christine needs to go to that church, okay? So I knew about it firsthand, and I talked with their pastors many times, and they gave me a lot of advice on what to do in church planning, but they said, listen, Jesse, at the end of the day, James is my favorite pastor too. No, they didn't say that. They said, listen, Jesse, at the end of the day, it's in God's hands. Do this or don't do this. Do that or don't do that. But at the end of the day, understand that if anything good happens, it's because of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, and that's good. But the Lord establishes his steps. Now, some of us need to hear this. Okay, our theology, it's fine. Right? Ask us to talk about the sovereignty of God, and we can talk your ear off. But in day-to-day -day life, with problems big and small, somehow... It just doesn't sink in. It doesn't connect. We hardly think of God in the moments of trouble that we go through. We tackle the small problems on our own strength, and then we lose sleep and stress over the big ones. And yes, we know God has a plan. God is in control. We can say it with the best of them. God is doing something. We know that, but maybe, maybe the truth is we don't actually believe it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, but the choir is, are the people who need to hear it the most. You say you believe in God, but what difference does that actually make? You believe in a God who created everything. What difference does that make? You believe in a God who holds the entire world in his hands. What difference does that make? You believe in a God who has planned the beginning to the end. What difference does that make in your life? 
And this leads to the next point, because you might have some questions about this. So we talked about the council. We learned that God is actually the one pulling the strings, but there's more. Second, the close call. The close call, which is about God's plan and how it looks on the ground. Now, before we get into the rest of the passage, keep your place here, but go with me to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, first book of the New Testament, 14th chapter. This is one of my favorite stories to refer to again and again, Matthew 14. And I'm just going to read it, and then I'll give you a comment. You probably know it, but I want to show you something. Matthew 14, we're changing gears here. This is the New Testament. This is Jesus, Matthew 14, verse 22. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's a lot to say here. But I just want to point out something. Jesus says, do not be afraid. And when Jesus commanded Peter to walk on water with him, he did, and he could. But then what happened? There, uh, there were two things Jesus told Peter to do. One, don't be afraid and come out to me on the water. But when Peter saw the wind, he was what? He was afraid. The one thing he said, don't do. And then he began to sink, and he couldn't walk on water anymore. And maybe we say, silly Simon Peter. This is a common thing in the gospel. Silly disciples always messing up, constantly taking L's, as the young people say. But let's be real. It's not easy to have zero fear when you're in the middle of a windstorm on a lake. And it's definitely not easy, I would say, to walk on water. Now, back to 2 Samuel 17. Why do I even bring this up? Well, here's something we have to understand before we look at this next part of the passage. Yes, God has a plan. We are told that. The difficulty is, though, we're usually not told the particulars of what that'll be, how it'll look, how things are going to unfold. In fact, when you look around at how things are going, you might be tempted to think that God doesn't got you. Verse 15. Verse 15, then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, what's going on here? Well, Hushai leaves Absalom. Okay, he's probably sweating bullets. He goes to the high priest, Zadok and Abiathar, and he tells them what Ahithophel said and also what he said. And what does this tell us? That he doesn't know which course Absalom is going to take. It's not like he gives his spiel and then Absalom says, for sure, we're going to do this, kick Ahithophel out. No, he says, okay, you're dismissed. We'll talk about it. Hushai is still very nervous. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He did his best, but he doesn't know how Absalom is going to take it. That's why he gives them both plans. Now, we know because we're told what God is up to, but Hushai, he just has to trust. Verse 16. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, time is of the essence. See, if Absalom takes Ahithophel's advice, which is a very real possibility in Hushai's mind, David has just a few short hours to get away. And this is what Hushai is afraid of. They need to get the message to David in case Absalom or Ahithophel with 12,000 warriors just shows up. Verse 17, now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at En-Rogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Okay, so there's a lot of names here. Here's what you got to know. Jonathan and Ahimaaz are the priest's sons. 
And they're the ones who are tasked with getting any messages to David, any intelligence. They're waiting outside of the city because they don't want Absalom to see like people who are kind of David friendly walking in and out of the city. It's suspicious. So picture the chain of communication. Okay, Hushai, he goes to the priest. He tells them what he knows. They need to get this message to their sons who are waiting outside the city who need to get it to David. So they send a nondescript female servant to hopefully kind of stealthily talk to them outside the city at Enrogel. But then verse 18, something goes wrong, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. So someone rats them out. They got to hide in this well. Keep reading. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. I mean, these guys are hiding. They are so nervous. They are listening for any sound. People are looking for them, hence the close call. They almost get caught. And sure, there's no proof that they're helping David, but let's say they get detained for questioning at the very least. Then they wouldn't be able to get the warning to David in time. That's their thought process. Ahithophel could be showing up with 12,000 warriors any minute now. I mean, if you just put yourself in the situation for a second, they are stressed out of their minds, 100%. And yet, we're not in that situation, right? And if you stop and think about it, of course, we're not stressed at all. I mean, not just because it's a story and we're sitting in our comfortable, semi-comfortable seats, but we know because we've been told as the readers of Scripture that Absalom is going to follow Hushai's advice instead. They got time. They don't need to rush. It's okay. 12,000 men aren't coming. We know that the Lord has ordained to bring harm against Absalom, so no need to worry. But here's the thing that we are shown. Do any of them know that? No. Verse 21. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. If Ahithophel's coming, you got to get out right now. Verse 22. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. They have to go with the worst case scenario. So they gather everyone up. I mean, if you are a parent here, you can understand how crazy this is. You got to wake up the kids. It's a very scary life or death situation. You say, we got to cross this river. There's no bridge, right? You got to ford this river because it's possible that 12,000 men are coming to kill us right now. Now, is God watching over David? Clearly, yes. Does this mean, though, that everything is going to be smooth sailing with no difficulty and no stress at all? Definitely not. God never breaks open heaven to tell David, hey, by the way, it's okay. Okay, things are going to work out. Uh, This is my plan. God never tells Hushai either. And God doesn't make it easy on the messengers. This is a tense, dangerous situation. And here's what we have to understand, okay? Just because you believe in God and you know that God has a plan, and even though it's true that God has your back, it doesn't mean that your life will be devoid of close calls. And the inverse is true, too. Having close calls, things seemingly not going well, confusion in your life, it doesn't mean that God's not involved. I mean, okay, did you know little Bible trivia for you. Did you know that there's a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name even one time? You know what book it is? Here's some whispering. Anyone say Proverbs? No, it is Proverbs. It's Esther. Esther. It's an entire book of the Bible that doesn't mention God a single time. And Esther is an intense book. Some would even call it the craziest book in the Bible. It's a book where God's people are threatened with extinction, and all these things have to go right for them to be saved. And yet if you've read it, you know that there are a lot of ups and downs in the book. There are a lot of twists and turns. There are a lot of times where it looks like things got messed up for the worse. There are a lot of close calls. And it's disturbing to some people that God's name isn't mentioned. Where is he? Isn't this, you know, God's people here? Aren't these the Jews, the Israelites? Where is God? 
But that's the whole point of the book. Spoiler alert. Even though God's name isn't mentioned, this book is given to us so that we would learn to see God's fingerprints over everything that happens. We need to learn to trust God even when things don't seem like they're going well from our perspective. This is what it means to actually trust him. It reminds me of this old Ernest Hemingway quote. He said, the best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. The best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. Because if you keep looking at everything that's going on, let's say the wind and the waves, then you're going to get messed up. And yet oftentimes I think what we want is for God to change our circumstances, to make things easier, to take away the wind and the waves so that it'll, it'll be easier to walk on water, so to speak. We want him to spoil all the plot twists so that we won't ever be tempted to be afraid. Or we evaluate whether or not God's plan is working, quote unquote, based on the results short term. And then we get discouraged when we face supposed detours. I shared my faith with boldness and humility. I prayed. I even fasted and it didn't go well. Obviously God wasn't in it or he didn't want me to do that or God doesn't want to save that person. Where I was honest and hardworking. And when other people lied at work and stole office supplies, I never did it. I never gossiped. And yet I was still falsely accused of something and God let go. Where is God in that? I mean, has God abandoned me? I mean, this is where our minds go. And that's a normal way to think. But it's not how the Bible wants to renew our thinking. It's not the way the Bible wants us to think. What we've been, what we're being taught here, what we're being taught to see is that God is with us through the ups and the downs. In fact, usually that's how it works. We're being taught that the most important moment to trust God is when we don't understand what he's doing. And we're being taught that we're responsible for our part, but ultimately God will take care of the results. So there's some peace in that. I mean, notice God uses Hushai and his argument. God uses these messengers and the well, even if they couldn't see it at the time, but they did their best and they left the rest to God. And does God take care of it? Ultimately, yes, he does. So take heart, Christian, if you're a Christian here. The great heroes of the faith, not just here, but throughout the scriptures, they often didn't know what was going to happen for sure either, but they kept moving forward in trust and obedience. Can we do the same? I mean, even if you don't know how things are going to shake out, can you do what God calls you to do? Can you wake up in the morning and love that person, even if you're not sure if it'll be reciprocated? Can you extend forgiveness, even if you're not sure that person will actually change? You get the idea. See, hear this quote from Augustine, the old church father, and then we'll move on. He said, pray as though everything depended on God, work as though everything depended on you. See, just do the right thing. Make this a conviction and then leave the rest to God. Put your whole heart into doing the things you know you're supposed to do. And to put your whole trust, your full trust in him. It's the only way to live a courageous and faithful life. And this leads to the third and final point, the cliffhanger. The cliffhanger, which is about finding peace in the midst of chaos. We talked about that a little bit. Now, the story isn't over, and there's a plot twist you might not have expected. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And we're like, wait, what? Right, Ahithophel, once he saw that Absalom was going with Hushai, he goes home and he cleans up his house, sets everything in order, and then he hangs himself. Why? I mean, it wasn't just the heat of the moment. I mean, he actually takes time to do it the right way. He travels home. It was thoughtful. So what is going on here? Well, you got to understand the tragic story of Ahithophel. Think back on the counsel that he gave. There were two things he said. You remember? He said, one, Absalom, go into your father's concubines. And then two, I'm going to kill David and David alone. And then think about the one possible reason why Ahithophel would have turned against David at all in the first place. Do you remember? I mean, it didn't seem like it was power. It didn't seem like there was any money involved or anything like that. The one thing we're told is that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. It was probably always personal. 
And then think about this. Ahithophel was the lead advisor in the court, the, the best advisor that David had. Most likely he was there, or at least he heard about it, when the prophet Nathan was sent by God to rebuke David. And what did God say to David through Nathan? He said, two things are going to happen to you. One, one, because of your sin, the sword will never leave your house. Violence is going to come upon your house. And then two, he said, because of your sin, someone is going to sleep with your wives. So put two and two together. It makes a lot of sense. Ahithophel knew as well as anyone that David had committed the sins of adultery and murder. He knew that his punishments were corresponding. I think what's going on here is that Ahithophel thinks by his counsel that he is the instrument of God's justice. That he's not doing anything wrong. This isn't rebellion or insurrection. This is David getting what he deserves. We're just speeding it along. I honestly think Ahithophel thought that he was on God's side in some way. So why does he hang himself? Well, I think it's clear. If you look back at 2 Samuel 16, 23, last chapter, it says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. People basically took his word as gospel, as the Bible. They would just do whatever he says. He says, jump. They say, how far? That's it. So, okay, on a human level, okay, you might be thinking, all right, Ahithophel, he sees now that Absalom is foolish, that he's not going to be a good king. He's not going to win this battle. He might even die. The writing's on the wall. But that's not it, I don't think. I think what we're being shown is much more than that. If Absalom esteemed Ahithophel that much, something else is going on to make Absalom turn away. I mean, think about how the pieces played out. Right? He asks for advice. He always follows it. Ahithophel gives advice and he says it's good, but then he says, wait a minute, let's ask David's friend Hushai to give a critique. And then he gives his critique. And I don't know, you could judge for yourself whether you think that his plan was as effective, but Absalom hears Hushai's plan and says, oh, this is much better. We're going to go with this. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. In fact, in Proverbs, it says that the, uh, the Lord turns the heart of the king. Ahithophel, I think, realizes that there's more going on. He realizes now that God is against him, and he gives up. He realizes that God isn't using him as an agent of divine justice. God is his enemy here. But then instead of trying to make things right, he ends things. And you might be surprised, why would you do that? I mean, if you believe in God, you know that things are going to get worse if you hang yourself. There's no escape from God in death. But people do this. I mean, very famously, someone in the New Testament did almost the exact same thing. He was very close to somebody, and then he betrayed that person. And then after time went on, he lived to regret it, and then he hanged himself. Do you remember? Judas Iscariot did the exact same thing. And see, this is the final application. What, make, what makes Ahithophel's story so tragic is that his wisdom ultimately didn't lead him to God. Just as Judas Iscariot's proximity physically to Jesus didn't lead him to salvation. They weren't concerned enough with their own relationship with God and with eternity. Because when all is said and done, okay, as the scriptures say, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's more to life than power or comfort or money or prestige. Our problems today will prove to be light and momentary in the face of eternity. See, these guys, they kill themselves because they thought the game was up, but the game was just beginning. They can't escape. By killing themselves, they were placing themselves and fast-tracking themselves on the way to eternal judgment. Now, where is this going? Well, let me tell you a quick story. During the Civil War, as the story goes, probably apocryphal, but it's a good illustration. President Lincoln met with a group of ministers. And they had a prayer breakfast or something. And uh, at this breakfast, one of the ministers said, uh, Mr. President, let me pray for us that God would be on our side. And Abraham Lincoln, though he was not a Christian, most likely he showed incredible insight with his response. He said, actually, sir, no, let us pray that we are on God's side. See, the lesson 
is that the most important thing for people, for you and for me, it isn't here and now. It's not that God would change all of our circumstances, make things easier for us, take care of all of our problems, take our side in every conflict. No, sir. The most important thing is that we are right with God. Because then we'll know for sure where we're heading. We'll know where our story ends. And I call this the cliffhanger. That's how this chapter ends, verse 24 to the end. Then David came to Mahanaim. Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. He's right behind. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with them to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. This is what we talked about last week. God prepares a table before David in the presence of his enemies. And some of these people, some of these guys are or were enemies. The Ammonites, for instance, they just had recent history with Israel and it wasn't good. Barzillai the Gileadite. Gilead is where Absalom is camping. And the reason why he sets up here most likely is because it's one of the most anti-David places in all Israel. It's a super pro-Saul area because Saul helped them all these years before. But even here, we see all these people coming out to help David, creating this oasis in the wilderness, bringing beauty from ashes. And the question is, do we see his fingerprints here? Now, the battle lines are drawn. We're not going to see the conclusion of this battle till next year. It's a cliffhanger. But is it really, though? Is it really, though? Because here's the thing. We already know that God has ordained Absalom's defeat. Ahithophel could see it clearly. Yes, the battle needs to be fought, but we already know what's going to happen, and David knows it too. David knows it too. David knows that God has got him. He's going to die eventually, but even then, death isn't the end. See, here's the thing. Even win or lose this battle, even if God takes him home right now, did you hear what I just said? He will be taken home. If you remember what he said in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hear it, forever. And that's it. That's the issue at the end of it all, your relationship with the living God. If God has got you, if you are right with God, if you know God, then you know exactly how things are going to end no matter what. Whether win or lose, whether live or die even, there is so much more on the other side. So the question is, do you know him? That's what it boils down to. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Or do you secretly hate him? Do you believe in him or are you inwardly full of doubt? Do you approach him as a caring father or do you see him more as a distant and personal deity? Get right with God and everything else will fall into place. So how do we get right with him? Well, you got to understand that this is God's world. He created it, everything in it. He's where meaning and morals and purpose come from. And he created us to live for him and have a relationship with him for eternity. But in our sin, we've turned away from God. And each of us naturally now is on a path toward eternal judgment, facing separation from God and condemnation for our sins, bearing the penalty of the wrath of God in hell. But God, he stepped down into the pages of his own story, and he became one of us. He lived the perfect life we can never live, and then he died the death we deserve, taking the punishment we deserve on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the proof that God is love and that forgiveness and reconciliation and peace are available and eternal life. See, Christianity is not about doing religious good deeds to become better people so we feel superior to everyone else. No. It's not about life hacks and strategies so we can win at life and get a lot more successful. No, it's about recognizing our need for God and finding him in the face of Jesus Christ. It's about trust. And so we come full circle. And we'll close here. You know what's funny about Vivek Renadive? It's a great story, right? They were so successful. They overachieved. 
And he is smarter and more successful than me, so I say this with all humility. But what's funny is he had this special strategy, and he went all the way to the national championship game, but what they don't want to tell you is that they lost that game. Okay? When they faced the final Goliath, they lost. It didn't work. And I mean, sure, you can't win them all. But then, if you know anything about the NBA, Vivek Ranadive bought the Sacramento Kings, a professional franchise. And when he first bought it, he had all these ideas, all these special strategies about how they were going to do things differently, and they were going to be super successful, and they were going to change the narrative. But that was a few years ago. And to this day, the Kings had the longest playoff drought in the entire NBA. And he is under fire. I read it on Wikipedia. A lot of people, I should have written down the quote. A lot of people think that their lack of success is due to Ranadive's weird ideas, something like that. So where does that leave us? Don't trust in the wrong thing. Don't miss out on the simple lesson. Salvation from sin and from all your problems is not in you. It's not a matter of simple strategy. It's not about changing your mindset to take your disadvantages and turn them into advantages. Yes, be faithful. Work as if it all depends on you. That's how hard you should strive to obey. But at the end of the day, you got to trust God. Trust his plan. And the way forward is to get right with him and to get to know him more. And when you do, when you do, you will begin to see his fingerprints in everything. When you do, you'll start to understand what Jesus meant when he said, take heart, it is I, don't be afraid, before the wind and the waves stopped. And then you'll be able to go into battle against any Goliath and not fear, not because you have a slingshot or you have some stones or you're quick, but because you know that the battle is the Lord's. Because God's got you. And he knows how this will end. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray, God, we ask that we would know you more, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would help us in our own weakness and hard-heartedness. And God, I pray for all of us here that we would be able to give our lives entirely to you and trust you and have the peace that comes with that that we would know that with you really truly in eternity, there is no winning and losing, that everything works out for good, for your glory. God, I know that at the end of the day, it's so easy to forget this, so easy to look at the wind and the waves, to be distracted. But God, I pray that you would do something in our hearts right now and in our minds. You would help us to remember these things. And I pray that we would be different from today forward because of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.